This is the Conduit Church Podcast. It is our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us. Thanks for joining us for this week's teaching. Well, here's what I know. First John chapter three, love is in the air. Not because it's just February, uh, although that's a good reason for it. But love is in the air because that's the way that Jesus left this earth. That's what God created this earth for. That love would be the supreme ethic of the universe. And the early church had this problem in that they were people that were a part of their church, people that were sitting beside them, people that maybe got baptized. They were in there and then they left their faith. And so there were two problems. One is what happened to those people? You know, how do we avoid it? And then the question was, how do we know? This is what First John really answers is how do I know that I'm actually a Christian? How do I know that I'm not like First John 2.19, that I was with them, but I was not one of them? How do we know? That's what First John chapter three answers for us. And one of the supreme things in this entire chapter is a specific focus on love. It's the one thing that differentiates Christianity from any other world religion as well as any other ideology on the planet. And here's the thing, God knew that. He wired us for it, wired us to need it so that love for my wife, love from him, like that's the thing that he wired us the most for from the moment we're born. And one of the things that's evidence of that is just the success of, well, let's start with this. Back in the early, early, early 1900s, there was a little family in rural Nebraska that are not related to me that I know of that opened up a little store called the Hall Store. And the Hall Store was simply this. They just, I didn't even know this was a business, Ronnie. They just sent out Christmas letters for people. Like they, they invented Christmas cards. Like before them, there wasn't such a thing. So they would send out and sell these little Christmas letters and sell them. What ends up happening over the next 50 years is the Hall store, this family, becomes the juggernaut known as Hallmark. Hallmark cards, right? And that industry, that juggernaut, in just the last year has become the third most watched network on television. Above CNN, which, by the way, is not hard to do. <laughs> like, I, I feel like there are kids in our youth group that have more followers on Instagram than Anderson Cooper on a Tuesday night. But be that as it may, bigger than MSNBC, they, they are literally the third largest because what the world needs now, in the words of the great song, is love, sweet love. <laughs> and that's what First John 3 tells us. That's what... God tells us from the very beginning that he loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son. I'm gonna to read to you these few verses from 1 John. Uh, I'm just gonna do verses 18 through 24. And then I wanna show you exactly how John was dealing with this problem in that church and how it matters, how it really affects us even in today's world. Because again, this might be an ancient book, but we are an ancient people. So 
this speaks directly to hearts because we are still the same humans that are still the name, same need of salvation that they were 2,000 years ago. And should Jesus tarry, that we will still be in 2,000 years should humans still be around on earth. This is how we know what love is. Verse 16, 1 John 3. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, verse 20, we know that God is greater than our hearts and that he knows everything. Dear friends, verse 21, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and we do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you promised that it would be a light. And yeah, there might be darkness in the world, but we are the light of the world. And I'm sitting in a room full of brothers and sisters who shine that light brightly for you. And where there is light, there can be no darkness. So we thank you that we get to be a part of that light. We get to be a part of your solution in this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's possible that Tennessee, middle Tennessee, but Tennessee, might be one of the most overchurched and under-gospeled places on the planet. We got churches everywhere. I remember when God led us to start a church called Conduit, and I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Nashville needs another church? There was, a, there was a time, by the way, where it felt like any Sunday when you're driving around, it looked like churches running for political office because they had all these little signs in this school and that school and anybody that's been around for a long time. And, and I just remember thinking, man, uh, do we really need another church here? And by the way, the answer, yes, turns out. But what we needed more than another, quote unquote, another church is we just needed more gospel in our community. And one of the questions that church-going Christians have to ask yourself is, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm not just punching my clock on a, a Sunday night or Sunday morning, and that I, that I actually am a follower of Jesus, unlike those brothers and sisters in the early church that were there, but then they went away and they were deceived and they walked away. How do we know? Now, if you were paying attention when I was reading, and I don't blame you if you were not, three different times in 1 John 3, three times it says, this is how we know. So we don't have to wonder, we can just ask the Bible. How do we know? And what he answers in these passages is really simple. First question, this is how we know what love is. I remember uh, one of the greatest rock bands, maybe of all times, asking the very question, I want to know what love is. 
I know you can show me. I want to feel what love is. I, I'm sorry. Sometimes the song just takes hold of me. What is love? The second question he answers is, great, love is awesome, but unmoored from truth, love without truth is dangerous. And then the third question is, that's great, you got love and you got truth. Now, how do I know that Jesus lives and resides inside of me? That's the roadmap that we're gonna follow tonight. So get your seatbelts on, we're getting ready to go. Don't stop believing. That's the words of John. I love it that in some of these passages, he calls them dear little children, little children this, little children that. He's 95 years old minimum, so he can call us little children because he's just a little bit older than Papa Don Finto and seems like he had the exact same amount of energy as Finto. If you don't know Don, just Google him. That guy's a 93-year-old, not screwing around warrior for Jesus. That one of the reasons I went to Israel, I wasn't gonna go to Israel because I'm like, ah, there's all the bombs and all this stuff. But then Don's over there with a picture of him in a flak jacket and a helmet, 93 years old. I'm like, I guess I better suck it up, buttercup, because if he can do it, he's gonna never gonna let me hear the end of it. So that's the apostle John at 95 saying, my little children. And what he starts out with is the very legitimate question, how do we know what love is? There are certain segments of our society right now that have a, a tagline, so to speak, that is, love is love, which means I can do whatever I want. I, love is love. I can love whoever I want. I can, but look, that sounds great on a billboard, and it looks really good on a sign, but you and I both inherently know that that is factually incorrect. The way that I love my wife, right, is a very specific, it's it's a love of a man and a woman. It's the love that we share with each other. If I were to share that love with another woman while Shannon is still here, that love is not love anymore, right? If I were to, you were to, whatever, say that, but I'm gonna apply that same love to a child. We're abhorred by that. Like, it's abhorrent because love isn't love in that way. There is very specific meaning of what God means when he says love. And he answers the question right here. Jesus laid down his life for his, for you and for me. And those who love Jesus, those who are in Christ, we will now lay down our lives for others. If your version of love or my version of love demands someone else to lay down your life for me, that isn't love. And almost every worldview that comes from a secular humanist idea is not about me laying down my life. It's about you laying down your life so that I can be happy. I want this in my life so everybody has to accommodate me I don't want to be offended, so everybody has to accommodate me. That is not me laying down my life for you. That is you laying down your life for me. Abortion is asking a child to lay down your life, his or her life, for his or her mother. The gospel says my body broken for you. Abortion says your body broken for me. That is not love. We better figure out what love is before we declare that we love and that we are loved. Now that said, love in general, being the supreme ethic of the universe, is something that I think, I don't know, I take it for granted. I took it for granted for years. I just assumed that everybody knew that. I assumed it was self-evident. But history, 
Thousands of years of human history have taught us that love being the supreme ethic of the universe is anathema to humanity. Look at the Ottomans, look at the Turks, look at the Romans. Love was not the supreme ethic. Power was the supreme ethic. In Stephen B. Hawking's world, anybody remember Stephen B. Hawking? Okay. Come on, somebody. They made a movie about the guy, right? Well, in 1991, I read his book, A Brief History of Time. Uh, Ironically, a guy that didn't believe of God helped save my faith. Because he literally, in this book, uh, describes God without using God language because God is ever-present in creation from the beginning. But what he says is that the universe had a beginning, that there was nothing, and then there was something, and obviously nothing created something. And his explanation for this is, it's probably just something that happens from time to time in, in a universe, just happens from time to time. To, to put it differently, uh, th- this is me making a very oversimplifying Stephen B. Hawking, luck. It just happened to happen. So luck in that world is the supreme ethic of that universe. Without luck, we wouldn't be here. My dad used to say, uh, son, it's better to be, have you ever heard this thing? It's better to be born uh, lucky than to be born rich. Because if you're born Rich, you could lose it. If you're born lucky, you'll always get it back. To which I remember saying, well, I guess we were neither. (laughs) That that didn't work out at all. (laughs) But the supreme ethic of my universe being luck, what? (laughs) That's not a good thing. And then there's the supreme ethic of evolution and science that says the strong eats the weak. Now I shared a little bit of this last week, and I'll be honest, I got a little bit of pushback. Not a lot, but just a little bit. Hey, you know, how do we know that, you know, we can't can't just create our own? You know, if a a well-meaning atheist friend of mine that believes that even though that the universe doesn't declare uh, human rights and all those things, but we can because we're humans. And then I came across this video. uh, We actually shared it in our deeper podcast, but it's worth repeating here. It's only one minute long. A guy named Yuval Noah Harari, if you know of him, uh, he's trouble. <laughs> if you don't know of him, you need to be aware of him. For the last decade, this is a guy that's been pulling strings behind the scenes at the World Economic Forum. And here's why we need to be worried about Yuval Noah Harari and more than him, the ideology that he puts maybe, forth. Maybe most legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story. It may be a very attractive story. We want to believe it. But it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside. You find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. They too 
of, of, of just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it, you can touch it, you can even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories, very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. Now ask yourself the question, is that the ideology that you want ruling your world or our world? That there is no such thing as human rights, that they're just stories made up. Now he would go on to say in a different interview that the only way we're going to do that and get there is that we are, have to be our own intelligent designers. He goes on to say that we, in exact quote, we are gods. We are the ones who decide. And what he really means is not we, he, World Economic Forum. There just, there's a handful of people that get to decide, right, who lives and who dies. That's what he's talking about when we're talking about there are no human rights. Now, what I appreciate, as much as that sickens me, what I appreciate is he's at least being intellectually honest, if you listen to uh, atheists like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or the late Hitchens, they'll make a case for that we can, ethic, we can have ethics apart from God. We can have morality. We can have love apart from God. Even though, like he said, you're all, like, if you open up a human in an autopsy, you're not going to find love inside of a human because you can't see it touch it. You can't scientifically understand it. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are things in this world that we all know is, exist that you can't see or touch or that you can't, science can't prove. Love is one of those things. And without having a God, a designer, a something outside of us, then there's the battle for who gets to decide what those morals, those ethics are, who gets to decide who lives and who dies we just met our dear sister Moral from Afghanistan and what we saw there was how governments can decide, how terrorist organizations can decide. And we look at that and we think from our culture, we, have to, we reject that from our culture. What happened to her family in Afghanistan from the Taliban and the evil that's... But on what basis do we, on what basis can we say that that is immoral and unethical because we cannot say it from science? That's what you're all... Harari is saying accurately and truthfully. So where do we find those morals from? There are religions that very much authorize and, and, and say that these kinds of things are okay. There are worldviews and ideologies. There are governments. So we, if we don't have some kind of a, a central morality from somewhere, as humanity, we're in trouble. But here's the good news. We do. We have a God that created us, a God that designed us. And just like Matt was saying earlier in worship, like if Jesus were to come in here, he's not coming in here with condemnation. He's coming in here with love, with compassion, because that's the God that we serve. The God that we serve, that loves us, that he laid down his life for us. And now we get to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If you have need, how do you know what love is? How do you know that you're a part of the family of God? It's going to show up in your life in the way that you see, serve, and love those who cannot possibly repay you. 
one of the greatest gifts that you can ever get is to give, right, to someone who can't pay you back. And what I love about this ethic of love in the universe is it honestly doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little. If you've just got something and it happens to be more than the person next to you, you can still do something about their lives. I mean, I've got a bird's eye view of the Orton family, but man, the Orton family, you got, you know, you got a gym coach, a, a former flight attendant turned real estate mogul. We got, mogul? You kind of got some mogul vibes, but she's just a real estate. But, but Jennifer and Chris look at their brothers and sisters in Kenya and say, okay, we got some stuff. And, and by the way, it wasn't just money. It was their friendships. It was their relationships. We can serve our brothers and sisters who are in need that's the love of Christ. If you don't have that being displayed somewhere in your life, check yourself. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it just means that's an area in Christ that you'll and can grow in. I remember one of the very, very first trips I ever went to Haiti, long time ago. I was a, actually a lot of pounds lighter and I had way less gray hair. But I, what I remember that night was, that first night was, uh, Pastor LaFleur having the people in the church, they all, each member brought us a little, a little gift. And I was, oh man, we can't do that. I can't take that from them. But I remember, here's what he said to me. Here's how you set yourself free from entitlement, giving. If you are only ever getting, then, and, and I promise you, I, I grew up, and I have no problem. I, I, I think that if, if you are currently receiving any kind of government assistance, there's no shame in that, okay? That was the world I grew up in. But in a government assistance world, the world that I grew up in, we just took and took and took, and no one ever taught us to give any, even if it's just a little bit giving something back, it's what sets you free from it. It's what literally sets you free from entitlement, which is why even now, like in Haiti, they'll take up a little offering because it gives them a chance. And think about the dignity that it gives them. It's not robbing from them. One of the first offerings we ever received there was for ceiling fans uh, in the building. Now, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, we didn't make the entire amount. Uh, but as a man who appreciates a, a, a good breeze, uh, we, we made up the gap <laughs> for the church. It was like, that was great. But the, it's the pride on their hearts. They got to come in and see what they did. And these are folks, man, they're just scraping a sustenance. Oh, crud. Is that the word? Sustenance? Living? They're just scraping by, but it gave them dignity because they were able to now lay down their lives for someone else. When Bob and Carol went down and somehow miraculously, and I mean miraculously, built the stair steps and the, and the balcony for our school in Haiti, in a country. Wasn't that the time when they were, the cold country is out of two by fours? Am I remembering that right? Did you know that? The entire country, okay, was out of two by fours. Where does that happen? Haiti. That's where it happens. And so if you go down there, by the way, those stairs are still there. Hundreds of children are walking up and down them every day. And it's a couple of two by fours strapped together with metal, little metal, uh, whatever that was. And you made four by fours out of it. You guys laid down your lives. And to this day, there are children there who are literally receiving from the gifts that you gave. And I could look around this room, those of you that have adopted, those of you that have opened up your homes to those who are in need, that is what love is. And it is unique to Christianity in that Christianity is the only ideology, the only theology that actually justifies that. Because if I'm going from secular humanism, I mean, don't go to Haiti. 
go to the Caribbean islands and, you know, I guess Bob and Carol do that anyway. This is a cruise loving people. If you, I promise you, if you've ever been on a trip with Bob and Carol, plant yourself next to them because it's gonna be a fun night. Those, they have more energy than I've ever had in my life. But point being, if it's just, if the strong eat the weak, then that is a violation of evolution to go and help the weak. It's just a violation of the ideology. And that is the logical conclusion of where Harari, the World Economic Forum, where secular humanism and where most world religions leave is that if all humans are not created equal, if we don't all have dignity in the eyes of our creator, then it is a dog eat dog world. And you are a fool for using your money, your life to love them because it violates the laws of the universe. They're unlucky. Tough luck, Stephen B. Hawking would say. Ah, you're all Harari. Human rights are just a, a construct, so we're gonna make up new ones. How do we know what love is? That you lay down your life for your friends. Now that said, love is great, but what about truth? Because we got a world right now that is screaming love is love. We got the Hallmark Channel rocketing up with more love. We got, I mean... Sandra Bullock movies. Uh, we got Reese Witherspoon movies. We got, we got love in the air, right? Love is everywhere. But without truth, we're gonna misguide ourselves into making decisions that are not in fact loving decisions. I've heard it said before, worth repeating. As a pastor, is it our job to love our neighbor as ourselves? 100%. To have compassion on those that are struggling in their faith? 100%. And my job, 2 Corinthians 10.5, is to destroy the arguments that are enslaving those very people. It is an unloving thing to look the other way when an ideology is enslaving and trapping someone and not tell them the truth and not destroy the argument. It is not love, it is hate, it is lying, and it is not God, it is anti-Christ. But this is how we know we belong to the truth. He tells us right here. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, verse 20, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And what are his commands? Right, the Pharisees, they had 613 of them. We gotta keep them all. Psalm 78, David's like, yeah, let's narrow it down. There's 15 of them. And then Micah 4 comes along, eh, we're gonna narrow it down to four of them. And then Jesus comes along and says, actually, I'm gonna just narrow it down to two of them. Everything, all the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. The one who keeps God's commands, oh wait, go back. And this is his command to believe, verse 23, in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. That's what Jesus said, all the law, all the prophets hang on are those two commandments. Love God and love each other. And how do we know we belong to the truth? See, the lie is, what does it say here? If our hearts condemn us. And then it says, if our hearts do not condemn us. Now, if your hearts are not condemning you, it's most likely because you're living in a way right now where you're loving your neighbor as yourself. You're loving God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And in those moments, my heart is not condemning me. 
What did Matt again say? If Jesus is coming in here and it is condemnation, that is not Jesus. Jesus is not a condemner. The Holy Spirit will convict us, but not condemn us. Condemning us is shameful language. So what is the difference between those, right, that are condemning their own hearts and those whose hearts are not condemning them? Those who are not being condemned in their hearts, loving God and loving each other, those who are condemning in their hearts, I've got great news for you because I don't know if you're like me, but I don't love each other very well every day, right? If you're here at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you might experience a lack of love in the parking lot. I know some of our parking attendants have, which is why we're grateful you're here tonight because that means you're not yelling at our parking people in the morning. But we need some love in the parking lot. And by the way, what I shared this morning, and you guys at the 5 p.m., you don't have to worry about it, but if you're mad at what's going on in the parking lot, you can be part of the solution. Get on the parking team, and you can be a part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. I will say this, this is important. We're actually getting ready to break ground right after Easter. I think Mo said we're at the two yard line. Uh, we were at the five, the two, we're back and forth. We're getting ready to run right down the middle, but right after Easter, and we're waiting till after Easter, don't we? Because we don't want like a bunch of mud everywhere on Easter Sunday when we're gonna be needing all the spots. But we are gonna fix that. We've been working on it for a very long time. And I have had many, many opportunities that I have failed significantly to walk in love towards our county officials. to the point where I'm technically not allowed to go to those meetings anymore. <laughs> I can't remember, it might've been Tony Simpson said, you know, Darren, you're kind of an agitator. So what we need is to, to be, <laughs> if you can't zip. And here's the thing, I just get frustrated when something doesn't make sense. That's all it is. I just want it to make sense. And if it makes sense, then, then I may not like it, but I can at least walk it. But if it don't make sense, I mean, it's just maddening. So I'm not allowed to go, not allowed to walk in love uh, in those situations <laughs> because I have failed. If you are like me and you blow it, what do we do? Am I not a Christian now because I'm not walking in love? Am I no longer in the family of faith because I'm in sin? I grew up in a church uh, I won't say the denomination in case I offend some. Well, heck, I will. It's the, it was the Nazarene church. They were actually great. But I got saved every week. You know, I was in that world where you could lose your salvation. They, they play that Billy Graham movie when someone gets his head chopped off with the guillotine. And you, you don't know about the CJ, but man, they, they'd scare that out of you when you're a kid. So I get saved every week. I, the, the Nazarene preacher, if that eastern sky were to split and Jesus were to appear, would you go with him? I don't know, I don't know. Third grade, running to the front again, getting saved every week because I thought I could lose my salvation. <laughs> but here's what I have learned since then, that if my heart condemns me, that God, right, knows more than I know. He knows everything and he is not condemning me. Romans 8 Verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the chapter that leads right up to that, chapter seven, is that long chapter of why do I do the things I don't wanna do? I wanna do this and I don't. I don't wanna do this and I do. And he just, this whole long like paragraph after paragraph. And at the end of chapter seven, he's like, oh my God, who is gonna save me from this body of sin? Thank 
God, the last verse of chapter seven, Christ, in Christ, that is how I'm going to be saved. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So if your heart is condemning you, you get to ask, this is great news, ask yourself the question, what is the truth? If we belong to the truth, what does God know? If he knows everything about me, what does he know about me? He knows. Psalm tells us that I am made from dust. He actually says that he pities me because he knows that I was made from dust. He sees it. He knows. He feels that. He understands that I'm I'm, I'm just a, a human that needs the salvation. He knows that he has plans for me and you. He's got plans to prosper me. He has plans to bless, to, to not harm. He knows all these things. And if you are experiencing condemnation in your heart, such a great exercise would be to go through the Bible and read the truth about yourself because your heart will lie to you. Your heart will condemn you when God is not condemning you. And are you gonna listen to your own heart or are you gonna listen to God's heart? This is how we know we belong to the truth because our hearts can be comforted and we can, I love this word, rest in his presence because we know that he's got us taken care of. There are no scales. I don't know if anybody ever told you this. I don't know if anybody ever, because I think the Nazarene church did at one point. At the end of your life, you're gonna, you're gonna have two scales and if you have bad works and good works and if you got too many bad works, you're going to hell. If you got just enough good works, it turns out that's just Islam with a cross on it. Right? It's, just, it's another form of salvation by works and thank God. God, that's not the way our lives are going to go because none of us would make it. All of our scales would be too much because the truth is that only Christ and his work, that's the truth, can make me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If you are not feeling that rest, if you are feeling that level of anxiety and pressure, which I think if, you know, statistics are true. Maybe it's a little smaller because we got a bunch of scrappy, nimble, Jesus-loving, gospeled people here at Conduit. But statistics say more than 50% of people in any given room are struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression, struggling with not resting in his presence. There's an old theologian named Henry Nowen that said it best when he said that in many people's lives, there is a nearly diabolical chain in which their anxieties grow according to their successes. Did you catch that? Now, he didn't write that last year. Have you felt that? I've got, I got the house finally. I got the car finally. I got the wife. I got the career. I got the college degree. Why am I so stressed out? Henry Nouwen wrote it, but the Bible declares it, right? That there is no hope but in Christ. And if my anxiety is rising up, it may be because I'm trying to rest in the presence of a career move and not rest in the presence of my Christ. There is no rest in those other places. Resting in the presence of Jesus is where we get the power to go and to be in a career. The power to go and to be married. The power to live in a way where we can rest in his presence. That's what the truth is. And how do we know we belong to the truth? He says it in 1 John 2, which is that anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, that is the liar, that is the antichrist. And this is how we know that he lives in us. This is how we know what love is, right? 
This is how we know he lives in us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. If the supreme ethic of the universe is the strong eats the weak and God in his divinity and his sovereignty is the opposite. By the, it's just one of the clues, by the way, if you're in an antichrist ideology, is if it's the opposite of what Jesus said. It's, I mean, it's an oversimplification, but you'll find that at every step of the way, the strong eat the weak is the opposite of what Jesus said, because Christ said, this is my body, take and eat. He says, not the strong eats the weak, but in your situation, in my situation, we are all weak. And in our weakness, he is strong. Take this, eat my body, metabolize me. In Christianity, the weak eat the strong. And there's only one strong and it is Christ. And as we metabolize him into us, his weakness, my weakness is made strength right through him. And the greatest sign of how we know that he lives in us, and this is so amazing, his spirit lives in us. Now, what's the fruit of the spirit? What's the proof of the spirit? There's many people that would say it's something like tongues or miracles or whatever. Some might say that that's the, the, the proof of it. But what the proof is, is what we would call the fruit of it. And what does Galatians 5.20 say? The fruit of the spirit is love. What did he tell us that we needed? Love. So he didn't just give us the command to love, then he gives us the power to do it through his spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. It's a result, not an action. And the result is what we talked about last week. Remain in me and I in you. It's John 15. You will bear much fruit, fruit that will last. And what is that fruit? It's love. That's what the world needs. It's what you need. It's what God created us for. You know that he didn't create us because he was bored, right? Like he didn't, he didn't create us because he needed us. In fact, the only thing that I could come up with of why he created us is because he wanted to share this world, this love with someone else with you. He wasn't bored. He didn't, wasn't looking for an extra thing. He's saying, I love and I want to create some humans that I can, in my image, Elohim, create in our image to share that love with. The Trinity itself is, is this great picture of love in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? Three persons, one God manifest that way. But they loved each other, existed in relationship before, and so he creates us and invites us into that relationship. And then the only command he gives us is now just do that to other people. Now think about how good God is. He has everything. I don't know if you guys have people in your life that are uh, so, so rich. Maybe you are that person. Uh, if so, give me a call. Um, what do you get for the person that has everything, right? There have a couple of people over the years in my life that have been that. I don't know what to get them. They got everything. And if they wanted it, they just got it. What do you do for that person? Now, magnify that to God. What do you give God? He's got everything. Sneezes stars and stuff. Like, he didn't need anything. So he's 
wires us to serve, wires us to love, and then doesn't need anything. And then he says, Matthew 25, but when you've done it for the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it unto me. So God doesn't need anything. How good is God to say, but I'm gonna wire you to serve. And when you love each other, it counts exactly as if you did it to me because I didn't need it. So you give it to them, you give it to him, give it to her, lay down your life for them. And it's the exact same as if he did it for me. And if it's a burden, if it's a bummer, listen to the Holy Spirit in your life. Plant yourself, let him grow inside of you. And as you, I mean, I, I can speak with some certainty and some expertise on this because there was a long period of my life, several years, where I feel like what I was doing in Haiti was maybe out of a need. Uh, I was angry, it wasn't fair, but what, was it out of love? I don't know. But I know this, that I've met a lot of people on the mission field that'll start that way. And it wasn't out of love. It was about trying to fill a hole in their heart, trying to heal a wound in their own heart. And they end up burning themselves out because what does 1 Corinthians 13 say, right? If you've given your life for the poor, if you have uh, sacrificed, but you didn't have love, and it's like a clanging symbol. I don't remember when it was. I don't think it was a moment, but I think there were moments that led to it where I no longer was going there to try to fill something in my own heart, but to give something out of my heart. And that is a whole different way to serve Jesus. That's one of the most important things we could learn is that you can pour your life out and still not be doing it for God because it wasn't out of love. It was about selfish in the secular progressive world. It's called narcissistic compassion. Like, I'm gonna be compassionate, but it's really about making myself feel better. That's not love, that's narcissism. But in our world, in the Jesus world, we get to use the love of God, the Holy Spirit inside of our lives, overflowing from out of us. And that's how you set hundreds of slave families free, right? That's how you build schools in Haiti and in Kenya. That's how you bring brothers and sisters who are suffering through no fault of their own into your own home, like the Frasers. You guys are laying down your life because... Jesus loves Merle so much that he said, I'm gonna use you guys to, to show her that I love her. The world, the governments didn't show her that they loved her. The secular progressives, they're not showing it. The, the, the government, but Jesus, but Jesus. And he wants to show you that love in your own hearts. And then he wants that love to be shed abroad in your hearts that you can now share it with others. How do you know? Is the love of God growing inside of you, right? Is your heart condemning you? Then you're not in the truth. Get in the truth. How do you know what love is? We don't have to wonder because he said it is that you're laying down your life. And then how do we know that he lives in us? And that is if a little bit every day, the Holy Spirit inside of you is growing and causing you, inspiring you to do more today than you did yesterday and tomorrow a little bit more than you did today and long obedience in the same direction. That's how fruit grows. Notice he didn't say the carrot of the spirit, right? Or the green peppers of the spirit. You can grow one of those over the summer, but not fruit. Fruit takes time. And love is what? Patient. Stand to your feet. I want to pray for you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for loving all of us. Thank you for your goodness and for your kindness and for all of us in this room. My prayer is the same as it's been, which is let's not stop believing. There are so many in the world right now that want to deceive us. There are many in this world that want to 
lead us astray, but not this room. This is a room full of Jesus people that are grounded in the word. We are grounded in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.